0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here.
1: Our reading this morning comes to us from the Psalter, Psalm 72. Our, our reading from the Psalter is one of ten, nine or ten psalms that have been classified as royal psalms. Psalms, like the one that we shall read today, were used as coronation prayers, or hymns even, and likely used in inauguration ceremonies, royal transitions within the Davidic dynasty. For Christians, royal psalms cast a vision of our blessed hope when Christ will finally return, bringing justice and reconciliation to all things. So let us hear the words of the psalmist. Psalm 72, verses one through seven and verses 18 through 19. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon is no more. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
2: The date is set, May 6th, 2023, the location, Westminster Abbey, Buckingham Palace, the occasion, the coronation of King Charles III. Did you get your invitation yet? (laughs) The coronation of King Charles III will continue a tradition of crowning kings and queens that goes back nearly a 1,000 years. And of course, it will be the first in 70 years since Queen Elizabeth II took the throne in 1953. And I confess I don't know much about British royalty because I don't read People Magazine. (laughs) I don't watch Entertainment Tonight. I don't watch The Crown. But, All I really do know is that um, the British monarchy traces its history back to William the Conqueror, who, while invading England in the year 1066, walked in and said, yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) And there have been 40 monarchs since. King Charles III will be the 41st at a time in Britain's history when most young adults think that their country should do away with the monarchy. Why? Because most young adults in Britain see this growing disparity between the monarchy and the everyday struggles and problems of the common person. The coronation of King Charles III will cost 100 million pounds in U.S. dollars. That's about 150 22 million, and he will be decked out in four billion dollars worth of coronation regalia. That's billion with a B, which is some serious bling. (laughs) That bling will include St. Edward's crown, the sovereign's ring, the imperial state crown, the sovereign's scepter with a dove, sovereign's scepter with the cross. Sovereign's orb, gold, ampulla, the spurs, and the sword of offering. All adorned with remarkable gemstones like diamonds and sapphires, rubies and pearls. And From a purely fashion perspective, all those body baubles are no doubt pretty swag. But at a time when one in five Brits are living below the poverty line, The optics of that $4 billion worth of shiny stuff, that's not so good. I mean, you can't exactly, if you're a Brit, you can't exactly say, you know, I think the king really gets me, right? (laughs) I mean, I feel like Charles underneath that five-pound crown, he really can see me and understand me. Contrast that image now. Contrast that image with the one from today's scripture. Psalm 72. It's a psalm written, as Jerry said, for the purpose of being read or sung upon the occasion of a coronation of a king of Israel. The coronation ceremonies were a big deal back then as they are today. They took place somewhere around the door of the temple before thousands of people. They were sacred occasions because kings, it was believed, represented the very ruling presence of God among the people. Kings were enthroned to carry out the will of God on earth, making decisions and taking actions on God's behalf. And Psalm 72 is one of nine royal psalms we find in the Bible that praise the king as God's chosen representative on earth. But I think more than just words of praise, these royal psalms also served as a reminder to the king of his most important tasks. What must always be absolutely top of the agenda, front of mind, non-negotiable duties for him. I want you to imagine for a moment just you kneeling before the king, the, the, the priest, on your coronation. And feeling the weight of the priest's hand on your head and hearing the gravity of those fateful words spoken over you at your coronation. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness. May he judge with righteousness and your poor, may he judge with justice. May May the mountains yield peace for the people and the hills in righteousness and may he defend the cause of the poor and give deliverance to the needy. Justice and righteousness, defending the poor, delivering the needy. Did you hear what the priest just prayed over you? This, your holy ro- royal highness, this is your job description, this is your political platform. I know you, I bet the priest said this to the king Look, I know you've got some roads to build. Uh, some dams and sewer systems to take care of. I know uh, there's infrastructure plan and transportation and a space program. I know you're thinking about government kickbacks for, you know, tax breaks and rebates for solar panels and electric vehicles, but at the top of your list, O King, justice and righteousness for all people with special attention To the poor and needy. Justice, as we have seen in a previous sermon series recently, justice in the Hebrew is the word mishpat. It's such an important concept for our faith, it occurs more than 200 times in Hebrew scripture. It means something like to treat people equitably, and it has legal implications, of course, which imply that everyone is treated fairly under the law. That way, it ensures that that the law is not applied unfairly or circumstantially or with partiality to some and not to others. In other words, it's an an eye-for-an-eye kind of justice. If you do this, regardless of who you are, this is what will happen, the consequences. But Mishpat also has these profound social implications. Mishpat ensures that there is no bias or prejudice based on one's social status in our world. Whether you are rich or poor or middle class, whether you are a president, a paper boy or a plumber, whether you are a widow or a waiter or a winemaker, there are no distinctions among you in terms of value or worth. Other Everybody has dignity. All are represented in the common good and everyone has a seat at the table Because you know what happens when we don't have a seat at the table? We're likely on the menu, right? (laughs) And Mishpat says, there's no one by virtue of their power or privilege who has an unfair advantage. Now, if you are well-to-do and you have great connections with people in high places who can do you a favor, that could sound like bad news. But Mishpat also says... No one, because of their lack of power or privilege, has an unfair disadvantage. And that's really good news. If you're poor, if you're sick, if you're an immigrant or a foreigner or an orphan. And Mishpat guarantees that you will always be treated like everyone else because you matter as much as everyone else. It it acknowledges that, that not everyone who is standing on third base has hit a triple. And it also understands that there are some people still sitting on the bench that have never been invited to step on the field. And Mishpat then has a way of leveling the playing field. And it does so by trying to resolve one of the oldest problems in the book. Our human proclivity, based mostly on perception, to overlook and to otherize people, to disregard them To see them as less than worthy and sometimes even less than human. And so this prayer, this prayer of the priest says, judge and decide according to mishpat. Don't judge by what your eyes see because sometimes you only see what you want to see. Don't decide by what you hear because sometimes the only thing you ever hear is what people are whispering in your ear or what you've already heard, or what you expect to hear, which sometimes is untruth. This is our human nature, to to see the world and to judge others according to our eyes and ears. Maybe you remember the great story of the man wearing a baseball cap standing in this arcade outside a metro station in Washington, D.C., He's playing his violin. He's, he's playing Bach and Schubert, Ponce and Mendelssohn. And over the course of 45 minutes, 1,097 people passed by him as he played. And only seven people stopped to listen for any length of time. 27 people left him a tip, most of them, without even stopping to listen. And in all, he collected $52.17. $20 of which came from one person who actually recognized him as the same violinist who just three days earlier performed at Boston's Symphony Hall to a sold-out audience with an average ticket price of $100. His name, as you may know, Joshua Bell, one of the most accomplished musicians in all the world. Dressed in disguise as an ordinary street performer, Bell played some of the most intricate musical pieces ever written on a 300 a 300-year-old Stradivari violin that was worth $3.5 million. One person recognized him. With Mishpat, we look upon the other, we hear the other with the eyes and ears of the heart. We, We see worth and beauty where no one expects to see it or hear it. And so the priest says, Give the king your mishpat, O God. And then he prays, may he judge your people with righteousness. Again, this word in the Hebrew, Zedek, it occurs more than 150 times in Scripture, which means it's another very central piece to the Hebrew and Christian mindset. Zedek is almost impossible to define because it has has very layered meanings, but it means something like justice, charity, righteousness, fairness, innocence. But I think it's maybe best understood in a sort of obscure little passage from the book of Deuteronomy of all places. In that passage, it says, if a person is poor, you shall not sleep in the garment you have given as the pledge. Uh, You shall give the pledge back to the uh, other person, by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. And the book of Deuteronomy says when you do this it will be as credit back to you. It's a weird passage but what it really is speaking of is this idea of if you were a poor person and you owed somebody a debt you could give them really anything but if you were poor you would likely give them what you only had which is the shirt off your back as collateral or security until you could settle up on the debt as a whole, and the lender had a legal right to take the shirt off your back as collateral. But of course, acting on that right, that legal right, would never be the right thing to do because it would ignore the deeply human situation of the other, the one who has nothing to sleep in to keep him or her warm at night. And so the lender is invited to practice Zedek, to give back the shirt for the night, because it's the right thing to do. Zedek, I think, is defined most precisely as something like justice tempered by the right and decent thing to do. And in ancient times, Zedek would look like maybe you owned a big field, and it was it came time to harvest it and you would leave just the edges of the field unharvested so that the poor could come in and glean from it. Maybe it meant that if, you, if somebody owed you debt or, or were, was indentured in slavery to you, every seven years you would set them free and you would forgive the debt because it would be inhumane to, to destine somebody to a lifetime of indebtedness or slavery. In our time, it means looking at real human needs, and being moved enough to do the right and decent thing. Maybe you remember the great We Are the World phenomenon in the 1980s. During that time, Bono of U2 and his wife, Ali went to Ethiopia. There they worked uh, for a whole month, and, and something extraordinary happened to them. Bono says he would wake up in the morning and see the mist rising over the fields, and, and as it rose, he would see thousands of people who had journeyed all night coming to this food station where Bono was working. And he said, one man came to him with this beautiful boy, and he said something to Bono in Amharic, and Bono couldn't understand. And and so a nurse translated for him. And she said, what this man is asking for is for you to take his boy. Please take his boy. He'll be a good son for you, she said. You must take my son, because if you don't, he will surely die. And Bono had to follow the rules and say no. And he said, I turned my back on that man, but I never really turned my back. He said, because I, in that moment, I, I, I became the worst scourge on God's green earth, a rock star with a cause. And if you know his story, his philanthropic career, Bono has has met with presidents and prime ministers and popes advocating for the poor and those in global deep debt, third country, third world countries, people suffering from HIV, AIDS in Africa. Bono says it's not about charity, it's about justice, and he's pretty close. Zedek is not actually either justice or charity, it's both. The true meaning of Zedek is, is righteousness, it's justice and charity that repairs that repairs the world by doing the right and decent thing. And so the priest prays over the king, may he judge your people with righteousness. There's justice and righteousness. Mishpach, Mishpat and Zedek. And according to the ancient coronation prayer, these are what make for a great king. Not crowns or scepters or swords or gold ampulas. A true king treats his people equitably and does the decent and right thing. And some of the ancient kings in Israel's history ruled with great Mishpat and Zedek and some failed miserably. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, you'll see what happened to Israel when their kings failed to rule with Mishpat and Zedek. Their nations were conquered, their citizens were exiled and enslaved, the temple was destroyed, the people Wept and the mountains, even the mountains mourned. And the throne, it says the throne was reduced to a stump. And there's this one prophet named Isaiah who came along and said, There's a new king coming who will be different. It'll be something like a little branch shooting out from that stump. And that that branch would be a child who would grow in to become a king, a mighty. God. Only mighty doesn't mean what we mean, like heavy-handed and super powerful and strong. The king, this king, says Isaiah, will be El Gibor, which meant something like a powerful champion, a godlike hero. In other words, this king would be a defender of the poor and the needy. He would be the people's hero. He'd champion the cause of equity and he'd do the right thing even if the right thing meant giving up his crown for a crown of thorns. Mishpat and Zedek. And from this side of history today, we believe the king that Isaiah prophesied about came in the form of a person named Jesus who was a powerful champion and a godlike hero by whose rule and by whose life made each of us kings and queens in this time and place you do not have to be a monarch sitting on a throne to be God's royal. Every child of God, not just kings and queens, is chosen and crowned to live noble lives of Mishpat and Sadek, justice and righteousness. What does the great musical artist Lord sing? We'll never be royals, royals. It don't run in our blood. And it's a very cool song, and I like the groove it's just not right because we all really are royals. It does run in our blood because in Christ we are all made sons and daughters of God which begs the question who are you a champion for and are you living a God-like heroic life? Last week over Thanksgiving we visited some friends the family asked me to do a baptism, but the whole family couldn't get together, and so we, we uh, did a little blessing, and I adapted this little prayer that I do, and we do here at St. Andrew and for baptisms, and it, uh, our friend fished through a drawer and found some spikenard, uh, an anointing oil from the Holy Land, and we gathered around the baby, and I said this little blessing as I anointed her head with oil. Those words that I say in the blessing are, let the... Let, Your love for her be a seal upon her heart and a mantle upon her shoulder and a crown upon her head. A mantle and a crown? Aren't those words meant for a king or queen? Not a baby. But that's the point. This prayer is a reminder we don't have to be monarchs to be God's royals. You, like Jesus, the mighty God, are already royal. You're chosen, you are crowned to live lives of justice and righteousness. So hear that prayer spoken over you. May God's love for you be a seal upon your heart, a mantle upon your shoulders, and a crown upon your head. The takeaways for today. In Christ the mighty God, you are a royal, And like Christ, see and hear with the eyes and the ears of the heart. And with Christ, repair the world by doing the right and decent thing. Amen.
0: You'll find me with the ones without a voice, the forgotten and ignored, my blessing is God is a man.